Would you join us in prayer? Heavenly Father, creator of all things, master of all time and all space, all-knowing and ever-loving God, you are the God of justice and the God of wisdom. You are the God of mercy and the God of redemption. You are the king of the universe, the Lord of all creation. We bow before you. We praise your holy name. You are worthy of our praise. We praise you and we glorify you today in this place. You are worthy of our praise. Father, we know that your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. You tell us in your holy scriptures that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways and your thoughts higher than our ways and our thoughts. We are easily discouraged and distracted when troubling news and troubling times reach our ears. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. We desire to follow you more closely. We desire to be your people, a people whose hearts and minds are knit closely to yours, a people who think and act as you think and act. Forgive us, Father, for our ways and our thoughts that widen the gap between us. Lord, we are weak, but your spirit helps our weakness. Sometimes we do not even know how to pray, but your spirit intercedes for us. Your spirit intercedes for us with groanings deeper than words. Holy Spirit, thank you for being a faithful intercessor. Thank you for interceding for us according to the will of our Heavenly Father. Eternal God, thank you for justifying us through the deep love of Jesus, through his sacrificial death, and through his resurrection to life and to a seat at your right hand. In him we are victorious, and nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Precious Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you gave yourself for us. Thank you for also interceding for us. Thank you that you have made us conquerors with you. We know that nothing, no tribulation, no trouble, no persecution, no hunger, no discomfort, no threat of harm, nothing can separate us from your love. By your grace, we ask that, you, that we would grow in faith, trusting your active, living promise, secure in the knowledge that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor governments, nor today, nor tomorrow, nor things high, nor things low, nor anything created, nothing can separate us from the love of our Heavenly Father that is in you, Jesus. Lord, as you have provided intercessors for us, so you call us to be active participators, active collaborators with you in our faith journey. You call us to rejoice always, to make our gentle spirits known, to not be anxious about anything, to pray and plead with hearts full of thanksgiving, bringing our requests to you in everything. And we know that the peace that you provide will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Speak to us through your word today and bring us to a new understanding of what it means for us to follow you, to collaborate with you, our tender shepherd and king. 
We love you, Lord. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, and our intercessor, the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours. Amen Amen and amen. amen. Listen now to the reading of God's word. We start with Barb reading the opening scene of Jesus' trial outside of Pilate's headquarters. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he, said, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was this day of preparation and of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This ends the reading of today's scripture. Sean, will you come on up? Well, thank you, Dave and Barb. Good morning. My name is Sean Reese. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege to be with you today as we enter back into John. And uh, before I go further, I just want to thank the VAM ministry for this amazing exhibit that is on the walls. This is um, for the Gospel of John, including the flowers up here, or I mean the plants up here in front. So I invite you to take a look at these amazing uh, photos and drawings from the Gospel of John, and thank you to VAM. <clears throat> Well, our text today is long. Uh, it's a very supercharged text with lots of tension. And I wonder what stuck out to you as Dave and Barb read it. Yes, we are explore, exploring Good Friday in October which may seem a bit odd, but it's really a good thing. As Richard Newhouse says, Good Friday is not just one day of the year. It's a day relived in every day of the world and of our lives in the world. In the Christian view of things, all reality turns around the death and resurrection of Christ. So Good Friday cannot be confined to just Holy Week. Newhouse goes on. It's not simply the dismal but necessary prelude to the joy of Easter either. Every day of the year is a good day to think more deeply about Good Friday. For Good Friday is the drama of the love by which every other day is sustained. There is nothing more central to Christianity than what happened on Good Friday. I agree with Mr. Newhouse. Anytime we explore the passion is time well spent. And today is the trial before Pilate. All the scenes of the trial before Pilate. As we said three weeks ago, when Jesus was before the religious authorities, he wasn't the one on trial, they were. At the very same time, Peter, representing the disciples, was on trial as he stood around a charcoal fire. Today, even though Jesus is in the dock, Pilate is the one on trial. But I also think 
that John writes his narrative so that we, the readers, are also on trial. We are also on trial. John writes his gospel with us in mind as well. How would you, the reader, respond to Jesus here and here and here on Good Friday? How would you respond? Now, especially in these passion texts, we see the primary actors sharing what they believe in very difficult circumstances. So we, the readers, are invited to put ourselves in their shoes to think about what we believe about Jesus as well. Now this morning, as I walk through this long text, I invite you to keep the worship guide in front of you. As Dave and Barb said, the text is structured according to place, either inside or outside Pilate's headquarters. This slide here will help us stay on track throughout. And as you can see on this slide, there is a center to our text when Jesus is crowned. Our last study ended with the rooster crowing after Peter's denials. Jesus is then led to Pilate's headquarters where Pilate meets the mob outside verses 18, 28 to 32. Now as John says, it's early in the morning on Good Friday. Even this comment has several layers of meaning, which is John's custom. It was very early in the morning temporally, but also cosmologically. It's early in the day of the victory of Jesus over sin, evil, and death. The light of the world was beginning to overtake all the darkness. A new day for the world was dawning. So Jesus is, is led from Caiaphas' house to Pilate's headquarters, as I just said, where Pilate will go outside to meet this mob. What is unbelievably ironic here is that these religious leaders are worried about defilement for the Passover, all while doing everything in their power to kill an innocent man. This is the ugliness of religion for all to see. So who is this man, Pilate? I heard a Sunday school story once about Pilate where the class was talking about the Holy Family's flight to Egypt when Jesus was a baby. And this young boy had drawn a picture of the family fleeing. And he drew a large airplane flying to Egypt. <laughs> And when the teacher pointed to each person in the airplane, the boy said, oh yeah, that's Joseph, and that's Mary, and that's baby Jesus. And the teacher said, well, who's that sitting up front? Oh, that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> we, we don't know a lot about this man, but we know he wasn't a pilot. So what do we know? Well, to begin with, archeologists found a stone in 1961 now called the Pilot Stone. 
It mentions Pontius Pilate as a prefect over the Roman province of Judea between AD 26 and AD 36. A prefect was essentially the commander of auxiliary, auxiliary troops, which were really known to be peacekeepers. That's about it. So Pilate, in the big scheme of things, is not a big cheese. He's more of a little cheese, which is why he's in Palestine. Palestine is not a coveted place to work. And for various reasons, Pilate was no friend of the Jews. In fact, he treats everything Jewish with contempt. And almost immediately, in A.D. 26, he makes some decisions which infuriate the Jews. The Jews, in turn, begin complaining to the Caesar, <laughs> to Tiberius. Tiberius happens to be favorable toward Judaism. So Tiberius, the Caesar, gets upset with Pilate. <laughs> so by the time we meet Pilate in the Gospels, in the early 30s, he's in a real fix. He's under immense pressure. He can't stand anything Jewish, but he's also in hot water with the emperor. So he has to find a way to keep peace with the Jews in order to keep his job, probably to keep his life. Because emperors were known to take out those they didn't like. The bottom line is, Pilate can't afford to get this decision about Jesus wrong. So he is in a tense and complicated situation. Yes, Pilate is a real person, living a real life, and under incredible pressure. Just like many of us at different times in our lives. Hopefully not with our lives on stake, at stake, but maybe with our jobs on the line. Now, in our text today, as you heard, Pilate asks eight questions. Eight. And they are all the right questions to ask. For many of them, I wish we could hear the tone behind them so we could understand more about what's happening internally to this man. And in this text, Pilate makes several great declarations which contain gospel truth. Like Caiaphas in our last text, God uses Pilate, an unbeliever, to declare the gospel. We now move inside Pilate's headquarters for a private conversation between Jesus and Pilate, verses 33 to 38. In these verses, Pilate asks a total of five questions. They're all centered around kingdom and truth. Whereas high priest was a theme during the interrogation in the high priest court, now king or kingdom um, appropriately becomes the theme in the politician's court. In our text today, king or kingdom occurs 12 times. I think they're highlighted in your worship guide. Pilate simply must find out the facts of the case. 
So he begins the inquiry by asking Jesus if he's the king of the Jews. It's a politically loaded question because Rome has not authorized any king since the coming of the governors. Jesus, in turn, responds with a question, verse 34, essentially asking, Pilate, how do you even know to ask that question? And I think Jesus here is encouraging Pilate to make up his own mind, to not be influenced by the religious leaders. To which Pilate asks what sounds like a legitimate question. So what have you done, Jesus? What have you done? Jesus famously responds by disassociating himself from the world. Verse 36. His kingdom is in the world, but not of it. Meaning his kingdom is an entirely different kind of kingdom than the kingdoms of the world. Earlier, when Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus had, has, had spoken in more detail of the difference between the two kinds of kingdoms. After Jesus had foretold his death a third time, James and John go to Jesus asking Jesus if they could be great ones in his kingdom. If they could sit on thrones like he sits on a throne in his kingdom. Of course, the other ten get upset at James and John for their arrogance. And Jesus responds with these famous words. You know that the rulers of this world want to rule over others. The great ones want to exercise authority over others. Not so with you, Jesus says. Not so with you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. For even I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life away. See, the kingdoms of this world organize themselves without God. Therefore, the impulse of those kingdoms is to stand over others, typically with weapons. The impulse of the kingdoms of this world is to climb over others. The impulse of the kingdoms of this world is to rule over others. Not so with you, Jesus says. If you follow me, he says, you stand under not over, you stand under. The impulse of people in his kingdom is to stand under others by being a servant. The kingdom of God is a radically different kind of kingdom under one another in submission to one another. And the model is, of course, Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. This is why Jesus serves the hungry. This is why Jesus washes his disciples' feet. This is why he will suffer and die. In his kingdom, there's no need for weapons. There's no need for fighting. 
It's an entirely different kind of kingdom. In this world, but not of it, it's a kingdom of underness, not overness. But Pilate still needs to press further. He has to make sure that Jesus is no threat to Rome. So in verse 37, he says, so you're a king? Jesus replies, well, you say so. (laughs) It's an interesting response, isn't it? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Pilate, your idea of kingship is much too small. It's much too small a category for what I'm doing. Jesus then gives more details about his kingdom. Not only is it a kingdom of service, it's a kingdom of truth. Serving one another is to live in and by the truth. And of course, we've met the theme of truth throughout the gospel. Jesus comes, in chapter one, Jesus comes bringing grace and truth. In chapter eight, Jesus says that when we abide in him as a genuine disciple, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And of course, in, verse, in chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself, the great I am, embodies ultimate truth. So his words here to Pilate are an invitation to Pilate to receive him as truth. At the very least, Pilate now knows that if he condemns Jesus, he's condemning truth. Which side will he be on? Truth or falsehood? He then asks the famous question, verse 38, what is truth? How are we supposed to read that question? Is it a cynical question? Or is it a seeking question? I think most people read it cynically. But isn't it the right question to ask? So what is truth? Would the more politicians ask that question? Right? Besides, guess what happens next. Verse 38. Pilate goes back outside and speaks truth. His first declaration, full of gospel, he finds no guilt in Jesus. According to Pilate, Jesus is innocent. But instead of releasing him, Pilate appeals to a tradition of releasing a prisoner during the Passover festival. John here places the tradition within the hands of the religious leaders. The outcome will be entirely in their hands. Next, though, Pilate speaks more truth. Verse 39, Jesus is the king of the Jews. 
By using this title, I think Pilate is probably saying that Jesus is no threat to Rome. Now at this point, the crowd enters the scene and under the control of the religious leaders, rejects Jesus' release. It's important again to note, as I have done throughout this gospel, that when John says Jews here, he's not speaking of all Jews. This mob has been spun up by the religious leaders. And these religious leaders convinced them to choose a man named Barabbas. Now John tells us that Barabbas was a laestase. A laestase. The ESV translates that as robber. But that's not strong enough. A laestase is a violent terrorist. Violent. Which means he's a genuine threat to Rome. Moving back inside then, we come to the center of the passage. Jesus is flogged and beaten. Crown of thorns is placed on his head. And he's arrayed in a purple robe as the soldiers mock him as king. Now, although these actions are meant to do harm, on a deeper level, Jesus is being acknowledged as king. And most scholars see these actions as a scheme by Pilate to get Jesus set free. The thinking is that the punishment will satisfy Caiaphas and his, his group and they will release Jesus. But let's linger here for a moment. For here is our king. Here is our king. Although the world has its way with Jesus, we, the readers, know the truth. We see here the kind of king Jesus is and the kind of kingdom he's inaugurating. We get a clear picture of the gospel. We get a clear picture of the immensity of God's love for us and for the world. Here's our king. Here's the silent, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here is the true king. A king who brings peace without a sword. A king who brings an eternal kingdom without a physical fight. And a king who because of his obedience receives the name above every name and before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the true king. Amen.
Next, outside again. Pilate repeats his verdict that Jesus is innocent. He then makes another great declaration full of gospel. Verse 5, behold the man. Behold is always a key word in the gospels. It means to look and be surprised. Look and see the man. Peter had said, I don't know the man. The high priest said, this man was an evildoer. The crowd say, not this man, but Barabbas. Pilate says, behold the man. Could it be that Pilate is saying more than he knows? Could it be that Pilate is listening to Jesus talk and watching how he responds and wondering if this could somehow be how a true human talks and acts? Could it be that Pilate is saying, behold, look, at how this man reacts in this situation. Here is a person who reacts in the right way. Here is a true human. But the crowd responds by shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate responds by declaring Jesus innocent a third time, three times. The mob then declares their reason for wanting crucifixion, that he claimed to be the Son of God. And the text says Pilate gets even more afraid, even more afraid. Why? Why is he so afraid? Well, I wonder if it's the use of Son of God. Remember, Pilate's not a Jew. He's not steeped in Old Testament imagery. For him, Caesar is the Son of God, meaning he's a messenger of Zeus. Could it be that Pilate, with Pilate, with the mention of Son of God, this entire situation has all of a sudden taken on greater implications. In Pilate's mind now, this is a much, much bigger situation than just a Jewish issue. There's actually a question of deity here. I wonder if that's what's going on inside his mind. As with the arresting mob back in the garden who shook and fell before Jesus the great I am, could Pilate's internal foundation be shaking right now? Matthew tells us that around this time, Pilate's wife sent him a message telling him to have nothing to do with this good man because of a dream she had. Maybe that's also playing into Pilate's fear Dreams at that time were considered to come from the gods. 
Well, next, beginning in verse 9, Jesus and Pilate move back inside. Where Pilate will ask three more questions. Where are you from? You will not speak to me? And do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? All three valid questions. To the last one, Jesus responds, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And again, we are reminded that Pilate is not in control here. Pilate is not in control of these events. Jesus is. In the end, verse 12, Pilate sought to release Jesus. Literally was seeking to release Jesus, implying that Pilate had made several attempts to release him. But he backs off because of fear. This religious leader incited mob keeps pushing his buttons and he gives in. They knew how to get their way with the Romans. Pilate then takes Jesus back outside to the mob. Verse 13, where Pilate makes another great declaration. Behold your king. Look and see your king. But despite Pilate's gospel declarations, out of fear for his job and fear for his life, he fails his trial. He delivers Jesus over to be crucified. But the scene closes even more shockingly. So far, up to this point, we've seen the disciples represented by Peter fail. We've seen the political leaders represented by Pilate fail. And in this text, we get the conclusion of the religious leaders' trial. And they fail miserably. Verse 15, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Oh my goodness. Don't you just gasp when you read that? This is a horribly tragic moment. They've sold their souls. What about Yahweh? Isn't Yahweh your king? It's all over for them. The ones who accuse Jesus of blasphemy have just committed blasphemy themselves. It's a shocking and sad end to these trials. And that's our text. So what can we learn from this text today? Well, as I've sat back and studied this text, it seems to me 
This may sound shocking, but it seems to me that what happens in this text is not that uncommon. And we have to think that or we'll never learn anything from it. The people in these scenes are not exceptionally evil people. The motivations they have are all normal motivations. They're not exceptionally evil motivations. It seems to me that what happens in this text is, is pretty normal. It's, it's pretty ordinary. I mean, the religious leaders, they're jealous. They're feeling threatened. They're leaders, after all. And they're convinced they're doing the right thing. But they're blinded by their jealousy and their thirst for power. That's routine stuff in our world. And the mob, there's nothing surprising about them. Fickle mobs happen all the time. They get swept up in their emotion by a charismatic leader. That happens every day in our world. Pilate, he's a fearful politician way in over his head. And he's backed into a corner. He's trying desperately to maintain his job and his grip on power. That happens every day, especially in politics. So it seems to me, as Jesus stands before all these people, there's nothing exceptional about any of it. It's all normal stuff. Stuff that we all get up to on a daily basis. Fear of losing power. Fear of losing control. Blinding jealousy. Bitterness suspicion toward others, being swept up into movements, so on and so forth. This is ordinary life in our world. And of course it is. Because as one writer says, the line between good and evil runs right through every human heart. Sin and evil has invaded, permeated, and infected every single cell of our bodies. Jesus had told us that in his teaching. He, he described our plight throughout his ministry. He told us we are in the grip of something we cannot free ourselves. And that thing is sin. We're all in bondage to sin. So what do we do as a result of this text? Well, we turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 19, 14 of today's text, John gives us a seemingly insignificant, unimportant detail. Did you catch that when we read it? He tells us that when Jesus is sentenced, it was noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. 
We read right by that. But why is that detail so important? Because John wants us to connect the death of Jesus with the slaughter of the Passover lambs, which is happening at that point. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Israel, you'll know the story of the Passover. Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And God tells Moses that the final act of judgment against Egypt will be the killing of the firstborn in every household. So God instructs Moses to tell the Israelites to kill a lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts of their houses. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood of the Passover lamb delivered the Israelites from slavery and death. And now, on this day in John, that first Good Friday and the last Passover, the perfect and eternal Passover lamb was prepared, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. On that first Good Friday, Jesus became the great deliverer the great deliverer from the slavery of sin. He, the perfect lamb of God, will go to the cross to take away my sin and your sin and the sin of the world. And he will not fight it like a lamb that is led to the slaughter so he opened not his mouth. The one who is not guilty, said three times by Pilate, he'll go to the cross for those who are. Jesus, the true guiltless one, will go to the cross to take away the sin of even Barabbas, the guilty one. Jesus, the true high priest, will go to the cross to take away the sin of even Caiaphas, the current high priest. Jesus, the true king, will go to the cross to take away the sin of even Pilate, the world's king. Jesus, the lamb of God, will go to the cross to take away my sin and your sin, and the sin of the world. So we turn to him, the perfect lamb of God. At this time, I'm gonna invite the worship team back up here as I close. So how do you, the reader, respond today? As Jesus stands before you this morning, he's here, you know. He's standing before us today. As he stood before Pilate and the religious leaders, what do you want to say to him? As Pilate asked all sorts of questions, what questions do you have for him? As Pilate made many powerful declarations, 
What declaration do you want to say about him? Can you say with Pilate, I find no guilt in this man? Or behold, the true human. Or behold, your king. Behold, my king. So I invite you, as the team plays, to respond quietly to Jesus as he stands before you this morning. Now receive this benediction. How marvelous, how wonderful. Jesus is the true king, great and glorious king. Through his death and resurrection, may his glory shine on you. And may his glory shine through you as you leave here so that all may know the true king of kings. Now to the true king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.